You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tagan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. From November 24th through November 28th, you can save 30% by using code EMPIRE30. That's EMPIRE, all caps, and the number 30. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's Industry Best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This is the Average Conservationist podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies, breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. 
All right. Well, today I am joined by Tristan Henry. And Tristan is one of the, actually, I think he's the owner of Next Level Digital Marketing, back-to-back weeks, where we get a chance to talk digital marketing with a couple of great guys. Um, This week, Tristan and I cover a lot, um, as you probably are used to at this point. Um, We spend the first half of the conversation really talking about Tristan's upbringing in the outdoors there in Oregon, where he's at, um, you know, what it what it looked like, what it means to him, and his obsession with bird hunting, um, which I think is is awesome. I mean, bird hunting is one of those things that I did uh, growing up, but never really had any ownership in it, I guess. Um, my dad had a dog, or my family had a dog. My dad trained it, so a lot of my hunting was just, you know, tagging along with him. Um, and really, for, for Tristan, that's how a lot of his hunting experiences started off as well. Talks about how he took a little break um, in there and, and, you know, what really caused him to get back into it. Um, we share some stories about, you know, where, where he's at in Oregon um, and how it's pretty similar to a lot of the terrain in Michigan, um, as well as some of his good friends out there in Oregon actually being Michigan transplants. So we have a little bit of a connection there. Um, talk about, you know, how we got into digital marketing, um, you know, really the types of companies that he's working with, uh, what it is that he enjoys about it, you know, whether that's, you know, helping, you know, some of these smaller, you know, quote unquote, mom and pop type shops, um, you know, succeed and really reach their potential, um, or, you know, how he's able to use that as a mechanism to give back to conservation. So just a, a great conversation and, uh, one that, uh, I certainly enjoyed and hopefully we get him, get, uh, get a chance to get Tristan back on, um, in the future. So episode 129 with Tristan Henry, uh, enjoy, um, <clears throat> Today's episode is going to be brought to you by my friends over at Hard Side Hydration. And if you've, I don't even want to say if you've been on the fence, if you just haven't pulled the trigger on a swig rig yet, um, this week is going to be the perfect time to do it. Uh, starting on Friday, uh, Hard Side Hydration is kicking off their Black Friday sale. The first the first of its kind for them. And uh, it's a great opportunity to pick one up and really solidify your uh, hydration setup. Um, what I highly suggest you do is head over to hardsidehydration.com, check out their swig rig. And again, that swig rig, what it does is it creates or it converts any Nalgene bottle into your hydration setup. If you like to mix drinks, no problem. Swig rig can handle it. Super easy to clean, super dependable, super rugged. So head over to hardsidehydration.com. Tristan, good morning. How are you today, man? Doing well, thanks, Marcus. How about yourself? Hey, I'm good. I'm. O- I always enjoy like being able to kind of chew the fat a little bit, get to know someone for the first you know few minutes before we actually start recording, because I feel like it kind of gives me a, a good gauge on how the conversation is going to go. And right off the bat, when you're like, "Oh, you know, you're from Michigan," you're like, "Yeah, some of my best friends out here in Oregon." Are actually from you know like transplants and everything like that i'm like oh yeah this is gonna be just fine we're gonna we're gonna have no problem breezing through this yeah i think we've got some uh I, it feels an awful lot lately like we're kind of sister states so um 
yeah, you've got, you've got big sh- shoes to fill in my book, but they're all really, really good folks that I've run from out there. So yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'm excited to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Oregon's one of those places that I've always really kind of admired from afar. I've been, I've not been to Oregon at all, but it's one of those places that kind of that whole Pacific Northwest, I just think is an awesome area. I've been to Seattle, which is, it's in that region, but it's Seattle, right? It's not, you know, the outdoors. I mean, although, you know, you can get to it in a short distance. I remember going there when my wife was pregnant with our first kid. So we like, we'd walk around for a little bit and then like back to the hotel so she could relax and rest and stuff like that. So I didn't get to enjoy like the outdoor aspect of it, but just, it it seems like a, a much grander, bigger scale of kind of certain parts of the Midwest here with, you know, the different seasons and, and all that good stuff. And it looks like a place that I would certainly enjoy. I, I have to imagine you would, um, like, like we mentioned earlier before we, um, started the recording. Um, I've only been to Michigan the one time. Um, and it was in a little place that you're pretty well familiar with. sounds like, and, uh, it, Reminded me, it was like a carbon copy of the Willamette <laughs> Valley where I grew up. I mean, it was just, you know, Deschutes, hardwoods, or not deciduous hardwoods, um, maple and oak groves um, with ag fields interspersed. And and uh, it, it it felt like home. So um, I, I think you'd find yourself uh, pretty darn comfortable, especially in the Willamette Valley. And then, um, you know, you hop over the Cascade Mountains uh, to where I live now. And it definitely opens up um, once you break um, break the Cascade Crest in Oregon or Washington and Northern California, for that matter. Uh, it kind of opens up into a high desert um, sagebrush sea, and is like that until you get to the Rockies. So um, it's uh, it's pretty cool. We've got a really great diversity of uh, ecotypes here, and and you know something to keep people like us really busy, um, yeah. for a long, for longer than we have for longer than we have. So, um, and then it's funny too, you know, like all the, the, I think the social landscape in Michigan is pretty similar to Oregon, kind of a little bit divided. Um, uh, you know, um, two disparate groups of people, um, rural and urban kind of having it out for control and, um, you know, not to go down the political rabbit hole right off the bat, but like it's it's, it's funny because we probably both live in both of those circles in different parts of our lives, and yeah, uh, it, it's 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 like an out of body experience watching people um, who we grew up uh, having a lot in common with not want to talk to each other. So um, that's a very a very good way to put it, right? You grow up one way. And I think you grew up that way because, you know, that's, that's just all, you know, like that, that's your surroundings. So that's kind of what you learn through, you know, experiences and whatnot. And then if you're fortunate enough, you move on to different experiences It reshapes the way you think about things and how you view the world and all these things. And at some point you kind of get to, I think maybe like a second crossroads where both of those kind of intertwine, you know, you just as you, you know, become older and become an adult, I mean, we talked about this earlier, but you know, we're, we're pretty close in age and you just, the things you like to do sometimes don't always align with, you know, maybe the way you vote or 
the people that you grew up with. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, um, dynamic that, uh, I tend to face my, I, I tend to face and it sounds like you did, you do too, just the way you grew up and then, you know, where you're at as an adult and trying to kind of balance that or, yeah, I guess balance that is probably the, the best way to put it. So it's, um, it's interesting, um, I guess to say the least. Yeah. We get to do a lot of fence sitting, um, in, in states like ours. And I think, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't have it any other, other way, man. I, I, I love the parts of my life that I spent in rural America and I want to go back real bad. Um, and I'm grateful for the time I've spent in kind of, uh, uh, the small amounts of time I've spent in urban yeah. America. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. It gives you a different uh, perspective, that's for sure. Yeah. So, Tristan, before we kind of really dive into things here, tell me a bit about yourself, man. I mean, we, we kind of already talked about it growing up in Oregon, but, you know, how did you get introduced to the outdoors? What has kind of that journey looked like for you? Yeah, well, man, I was, um, I was real lucky. Still am, really. Um, but, uh, I actually, I was actually born in, in, uh, Yakima, Washington. Um, I, I call myself an Oregonian because my parents are lifelong Oregonians, but, uh, I had the unfortunate circumstance of being born in the couple of handful of years that they weren't in Oregon. Um, but we moved back real quick. Um, my folks bought a small farm in the Willamette Valley and, uh, and, and conservation was, a uh, North star for my dad. Um, he's also kind of a hardcore duck hunter. And so when they bought the place, um, they bought, uh, 45 acres of soggy, of a soggy oat field and turned it over, over the course of the next couple of years, turned it into a wetland, uh, conservation habitat, um, planted some filbert trees and I got to grow up with all of that, um, climbing trees and gigging frogs and fishing and duck hunting and, and, uh, really just got free to free range of the place. Um, sorry, I've got, um, apologies for that. No, you're good. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was, I, so I was I was really lucky. I got to grow up on a, a, a great little chunk of land and really close to it, and see a vision of stewardship on the one hand, um, a, you know, ag land turned back into wildland, and then I got to, um, and I, I've been a beneficiary of that ever since. So um, it it forged a hard connection in me to um, not just. Uh, hunting and fishing and, you know, enjoying the spoils of, of land, but also a keen realization that like we have, uh, a responsibility, <clears throat> a responsibility and, um, and that without a good deal of investment, you don't really get to enjoy those, um, right. those things. So it was, uh, it was an early realization from there and, and, uh, I've been lucky to have the privilege to continue to enjoy a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So what did those conversations, I guess, look like, you know, growing up with, with your dad who, 
you know, you said was kind of a, a staunch conservationist. Like what did, was there, was it more like a lead by example type thing? Or, you know, was he, you know, having these conversations about, you know, these wild places and public lands and even, you know, in, in your particular case where you guys had a, you know, a good chunk of land that you could recreate on and just, you know, learn kind of the way of the world as, as the outdoors or as it pertains to the outdoors. So what, what did that, that kind of look like that, that conservation piece when you were growing up? Yeah, it was mostly, uh, it was mostly subtext. Um, we had, you know, the, your typical father son conversations about responsibility, accountability, so on and so forth. But, uh, we also just spent a lot of time on the land. Um, and we'd sit, you know, sit a duck blind and talk about, um, how, uh, how we interacted with the natural world, not specifically our chunk of land. Um, but on, on our property, we, we always held ourselves to like a, a four bird limit. Um, and, and over here, at least it's, it's, uh, it's been seven for as long as I can remember. And so it was just little things that kind of added up to, um, give me the, the impression that it's important to give at least as much as you take and ideally a little, a little more. And over time, uh, the, the richness of experience that I got from, from those interactions with my dad, um, just became clearer and clearer. Uh, and it was funny because now I spent most of my, most of my, um, conservation efforts are focused on public land. It was a concept I was utterly unfamiliar with up until really adulthood. Um, and, and it took, uh, that infamous, um, occupation at the Malheur wildlife refuge, um, back, uh, prior to 2016, um, that kind of alerted me to this, this exigent threat that public land faces. Um, and at the time I was spending a lot of time, um, riding bikes and skiing and not hunting and fishing. Yeah. And so I, I hadn't forged the connection to, you know, public trust resources and, and the way things are here in America that, um, we're so lucky to have. Um, and so I saw this kind of unfolding and realized, you know, holy smokes that this is, this is precious and needs protecting. And, uh, there are those who would see us separated from that. Right. And ever since then, um, it's, it's been kind of my, my, uh, pet project or the, the things that I do in my spare time, um, when I'm, when I'm not chasing my dog or chasing elk, um, to, to make sure that those, those rights don't go away. Yeah, the you made a couple um, good points there. The when growing up, you know, and, and kind of learning, like you said, it was more like in the subtext of like you know spending time with your dad. The conversations you had that while the word conservation doesn't necessarily get brought up as, hey Tristan, this is what conservation is, right? Because it's a it, for one, I think for us as kids to to really grasp the the magnitude of that word, I think would be really hard for us. Um, but I think, you know, the way I was kind of shown or taught or, or learned was very similar to, to yours, right? It's the conversations about, 
when you're in the duck blind, when you're in the woods, if you're out bird hunting, things like that, you know, talking about the landscape, um, you know, why after we got done fishing, we made sure when we pulled the boat out of the water that everything, there was nothing loose in the boat that could fly out. You know, if you had any trash that you had accrued in the boat, it goes right into the dumpster. You don't want it flying into the water. Uh, you know, all these little things that at the time you're, at least for me, it was more like, okay, if that's what you're saying, that's what I'm going to do, you know? But it's not until I think you get a little bit older that all that stuff kind of starts to click. It starts to all add up and all make sense. It's it's almost like, you know, when, you know, when you hear a lot of, you know, younger parents say this or you have, like my parents said it to me, like, you know, once I had kids, it was like, you see all those things that we were telling you when you were a kid, now you're repeating those same things to your kids. It's like, yeah. see, we actually knew what the hell we were talking about, you know, 30 years ago or whatever it is. And it's almost like that with conservation, right? Like all those, those little lessons and things like that, that, that I was being taught and, and, and told all of a sudden, like once I was on my own doing it, I was like, oh, that's why we don't do that. That's why we do this. Yeah. This is, this is kind of the overarching theme of all these conversations that we had. And sometimes I think that that's, that's just such a, a great way to instill that mindset into, into your kids. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting to, um, the, the way you said that it's decorum, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just how outdoor decorum, good people can conduct themselves, um, to, to do something that is inherently unsustainable or that you would look down your nose at throwing a beer can out the window while you're road hunting, um, was, was just, you know, it's, it's, it's not good manners. And if everybody did it, the place would be a mess. And it's an easy lesson for a kid to learn for sure that, uh, you know, the cumulative effects of bad behavior, uh, can, can end, end things. Um, and it, it's, I think you hit the nail on the head because as we get older, the, the cumulative effects become more and more plain to see. Yeah. And, and we realize, you know, like you said, it, it, my folks were onto something here and <laughs> I should probably, I should probably carry it forward. Yeah. Now growing up in the outdoors and you kind of alluded to it, but there was a period of time in there where I don't want to necessarily say you, you stepped away from the outdoors, maybe just your, your pursuits changed a little bit, right? You said like skiing, mountain biking, things like that. What was it that kind of <clears throat> got you back into the hunting scene? Yeah, uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I spent, a, a good deal of time in, um, basically college and a bit, uh, and a, a couple of years, uh, following that, um, just chasing, uh, that type one fun, um, kind of, um, distracted, uh, from, from that. I, I'd still, you know, go home and shoot a couple ducks with the old man, um, or chase steelhead, um, or go, you know, catch some trout on a river somewhere. Uh, but I, uh, I don't know what transpired. Um, but I, I found, a I bought a compound bow. Um, I started shooting it. I, and it got in my head that I could figure out how to, uh, you know, harvest, harvest an animal with it. And it was, uh, something hard that, I thought I wanted to do. It was kind of a mountain I wanted to stand on top of. And 
so I just did it and I got humbled year after year <laughs> after year. And I realized this is this, this thing, um, that maybe I'm enamored with the learning process and not actually like the act of snowboarding or the act of mountain biking. It's, it, it's the, the process of growing and becoming proficient at something that kind of fascinates me and that hunting specifically and especially with a bow uh provided something that i could probably do the rest of my life and never stop learning never master it yeah and 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 that was really attractive and so i that's what i did and uh and that brought me back into the fold um then several years down the road when i finally um was able to punch a tag uh i realized just how great it is to have meat in the freezer and it was all over after that yeah it doesn't uh it doesn't take much right like hunting is one of those things that you know a lot of people define success as punching a tag right which i agree that that's that is a certain level of success when it comes to hunting sure I think learning, you know, about the 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 places that these animals live, whether it's elk, whitetail, mule deer, antelope, whatever it is, like learning learning the lay of the land, the landscape, how those animals interact with it, uh, is also a success. Um, you know, just unwinding, reconnecting with Mother Nature, also a success. Um, you know, just just spending time in in these places is a success, and it's it's funny how you know, one of those small successes can really alter your entire outlook on things, right? Like to, like you said, bow hunting specifically is one of those things that, you know, you never really master, right? You're always learning something. Um, I mean, even if you look at some of the, you know, who, who many would consider like, you know, renowned bow hunters, right? Like they're, they're always, you know, teaching people they're always learning new things how to be more efficient and all that and so it's just it's one of those things that it keeps your mind sharp and you know the the act of what you're doing and not just shooting your bow but you know being in the woods like the, all these things are just so good for you mentally mentally spiritually all that good stuff without sounding you know too you know crazy yeah. i mean all these things that go into it um it's it's something that's sustainable and that is good for your it's good for you, you know, in the long term. And it's it's funny you should say that too, because it, yeah, I recognized early on it was a vehicle for personal growth. Um, you know, the act of hunting is one thing that that I, I don't think we ever figure out a hundred percent. At least speaking for myself, but um, it was something that we could chase all year too, um, and and there's always something else to learn. Um, but it motivated a fitness journey for me. It motivated, um, me to focus on, on, on like some, um, create mental and emotional strength. Um, cause I had some pretty serious target panic still do when I see a big mule deer. Um, <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that. Oh man. Um, <laughs> And, and then there, and then there's always another thing to do. You get into building your own arrows, reloading, um, 
Yeah. Tuning your own, you know, all those. Yeah. The, the, the different things that the small intricacies, the nuances that go into to archery hunting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a never ending journey. It really isn't. It, it really shows you that you get what you put in, you yeah. get out what you put in and yeah. right back to, you know, that old conservation theme that it, it, it's like all these things go together so beautifully that, that, um, you know, you, you, you get out of, this journey, what you put into it. So, um, being reminded that, uh, I, I'm a person who needs to be reminded of that pretty regularly, but I'm sure grateful for the, you know, uh, the landscape and apparatus that reminds me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I'll tell you what, for, for someone, Tristan, like you, who, you know, lives, you know, in Oregon and has, um, a wide variety of species that you can chase year round with your bow. I mean, whether it's, you know, elk or mule deer or blacktail or, or anything like that. I mean, that for a guy here in the Midwest who, yeah, we have, we have elk, um, to draw an elk tag in Michigan is it's a once in a lifetime tag, right? People will put in for 30, 40 years and never get drawn. Um, and that's, and if you get drawn once, it ain't going to happen again, kind of thing. And, you know, we have whitetail and we have, um, you know, from a, a bird standpoint, we have duck hunting. Obviously we have some great upland bird hunting, which I know we, we talked about. You're certainly, uh, enamored with, but when you guys have all those different big game animals that you can chase, man, it, uh, it makes me very jealous. Uh, <laughs> you guys get to chase those, you know, starting in September or maybe even, you know, late August, depending upon where you're at, you know, all oh, the yeah, way through the end August. of the year. I mean, that's, yeah. that's incredible, man. It, uh, it's hard not to feel really lucky. Um, and I'm even to extend that, uh, luck. You're still, um, I married a gal who, who grew up in a hunting family. She hunts, um, not quite to the extent that I do, but I get to start early August for bow season. Um, and follow that into September, start, uh, bird hunting in October. October or earlier if I go to other states and then usually she's got a rifle tag um to to really take the pressure off of me for filling the freezer which is great because <laughs> I don't do it every year um and and we get to sh- we get to share that but I also get a hunting season that goes from pretty much like the end of summer to February yeah. which is pretty awesome yeah that is yeah see and that's I uh my wife comes from a hunting family, but she doesn't do it. She has no problem with it, enjoys the wild game, but just, I don't, she just doesn't have the the heart to, to take an animal, which that's fine, right? To each their own. Um, so she understands kind of the, the passion, the, the lifestyle that, uh, yeah. comes with marrying a hunter. And it doesn't help either that, um, you know, her brother, my brother-in-law is, you know, like my my quote unquote, my hunting buddy, right? Like that's who, you know, awesome. I, I do all my hunting with, um, primarily. So it kind of, she gets it from both, both sides, you know, and her dad's a big hunter as well. So it's a lot of like once, yeah, once October 1st hits, it's like, okay, are we, are we going up North this weekend? Are we going hunting? Like, she's like, I need to know your schedule. I need to know to plan with the kids and school and all that stuff. When you're going to be here, when you're not going to be here, all that good stuff. So yeah, shout out to the uh, wives who understand and who also participate. That certainly helps. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't do it without her. Yeah. So Tristan, 
um, you know, obviously the reason that we, you know, we're able to connect and, and get you on the podcast is your company, Next Level Digital Marketing, is 2% certified. So tell me about your company. Uh, these days, I don't know if there's a lot to tell, um, but I've been um, I've been lucky to run um, my own little uh, little show here for, gosh, uh, going on six years, I think. Um, I we do we do uh, mostly digital marketing, and and that takes the shape of SEM, so search engine. Uh, marketing, a little bit of social media, uh, paid advertising, and some content marketing. Um, and we dabble in web development and uh, copywriting and the like. But but it's it's mostly in paid advertisement um, and ad buying and management. So um, oddly enough, I I came to this uh, by way of a. a just amazing guy that I met, um, also from Michigan. Um, he, he came from the power sports industry and he had been working at a major manufacturer, um, and realized that, uh, that the small mom and pop, uh, motorcycle shops, uh, didn't have a great deal of representation. Um, that as, as the big manufacturers grew and handed out, um, kind of manufactured dictates um, of, of what their dealerships do from a marketing perspective, that they weren't making it super easy for those businesses to, to maintain their, or to, to achieve their goals, and that their goals weren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, because as if, if you're familiar with retail, um, you know, the uh, in a lot of cases the the people who own and operate the retail establishment are actually they're somebody's customers too um and so he started um and all credit goes to him he started uh this business um vending marketing and business services to small retail clients and he found me at the time i was working in a bike shop kind of between roles and and uh and we got to know each other we're fast friends and and uh, he hired me and empowered me and elevated elevated me and and uh, eventually offered me a chance to buy out the company so and go ahead oh and 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 so ever since then um, I've been um, working out alongside him um, or and and now he he alongside me to uh to help power sports dealers of all of all um people um hit their targets in terms of sales so um yeah so when you guys first got started there was it from you know like the the marketing side of things like the sem seo you know ad campaigns all that good stuff was that something that he had a lot of experience in or did you have some type of background that allowed you to kind of fit in and kind of hit the ground running? I mean, I'm sure, you know, like the power sports industry is, is pretty specific, right? So obviously his background and everything probably helped in that regard, but more on the, you know, the digital side of things, was that something you had some experience in? 
Yeah. Uh, so a little extra background. I had been working um, in the action sports world in a marketing capacity um, for a couple of years prior to that. Um, but uh, my degree is in communication. Um, so in business communications. Um, so it was the predictable career path for me, basically, as soon as I got out of college. Um, and as is the case, uh, you know, you probably, I think most of us learn more, um, in our first couple of years, um, of employment than we probably do in school. Oh yeah. Uh, at, at least of those things that are really germane to what we do on a day to day basis. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the technical things that both of us, um, began to do were self-taught, um, you know, we'd go out to, and, and go to, um, Google seminars and, and, uh, and kind of self-start and achieve certifications from, uh, Google and Facebook now meta. Um, and just, there's a lot of continued education, um, when it comes to making the most of those products, but, um, the 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 overall structure remains the same yeah so <clears throat> so what does it look like i guess like the the process right like if um i mean are at this point after six years is it um one is it more like referral based right like you know one dealer talks to another small dealer right and they're like hey you know these guys over here they they helped us hit our goals they they helped us put a plan in place and then once you do have um, a new client a new customer what does that process look like i mean is it more you know, a lot of fact finding up front and then putting that plan together is each plan inherently very different from the next. Like what is, what does that all look like? So, uh, it, within the, the specific vertical that we occupy and, and the, the reason I, most of my clients, um, are in, in the power sports retail space. Um, and because it's just easier to, easier to, um, essentially, build best fit solutions for yeah. each new dealership. Um, from a really early, from really early on, I realized that, uh, if I was going to work in the gig economy, uh, I needed to kind of build in a modicum of security. And so, uh, what, what I did there was made, uh, basically made a subscription service. Um, and so what we offer is, similar to like what a law office would do with retainer. Um, okay. but it's, it's essentially a subscription to our services and we, we have a rotating, um, calendar of monthly duties. Um, and because of the seasonal nature of retail and power sports, um, it's, it's pretty easy to, um, roll the clock over every month and attend to new priorities. So, um, on the sales side, most of ours, uh, we, we kind of adhere to a older model of cold calling and, and, and referral based, um, sales generation. But, uh, we've been fortunate to maintain a book of business that's consistent enough that, uh, that sales figures, um, as a very, very small part of, of what we do. Uh, but recently I've added a couple, I've, I've 
tried to branch out of the power sports industry. Um, again, in the interest of kind of diversifying. Um, so I've added a couple uh, conservation clients. Um, recently, we started working with the North American Non-Lead Partnership, um, doing a lot of content marketing for them. Um, and some piecemeal work for other conservation orgs, usually at this state level. Um, but the meat and potatoes remains um, that that subscription service that I vend to, again, primarily power sports dealers. Yeah, well, that's I think that's a good business model, right? Like you kind of you over a period of time, right? You kind of you find your bread and butter, right? You find what you know. And like you mentioned, with the subscription based services, right? Like what kind of keeps the lights on, what keeps the wheels turning, all that good stuff. And then, you know, once you have a, a good grasp, a good handle on that, allow yourself to to branch out a little bit, to take on, you know, some new clients, some new, you know, or organizations, I guess. And, you know, kind of organically grow things instead of trying to hit every market and all this stuff all at once, right? If you can if you can do it, if it's scalable and you can do it um, at a reasonable pace, then, you know, it makes that transition and, and that growth um, much easier and smoother instead of trying to, you know, again, do it all at once. Yeah, uh, I, I, I had run into uh, those issues of feast and famine um, at a prior um, in, in a prior venture, um, I, I started an event logistics company, um, after, uh, after my last, uh, payroll job and it, uh, it, it was a lot less consistent. Um, I'd have work for a week, no work for two work for a weekend and, and so on and so on. And it just became really clear to me that, uh, building a schedule that was sustainable and income for me, income streams that were sustainable was important. And then that translated to just doing way better work because I can build a calendar that is predictable and know exactly what I have to do, uh, to provide clients with the, the outcomes they need on a weekly or monthly basis. Um, and then extrapolate that over quarters and years. And, and it, it just, it just worked for me. Um, and, and I, uh, I've been grateful for the, that level of security, but also that it doesn't require, um, quite the level of stress, uh, or produce quite the level of anxiety that I, I think, um, some gig jobs can. Yeah. And you know, I'm the same way. Like I, I like to have things very structured, very scheduled. Um, I mean, some people operate just fine in kind of that, that chaos, let's call it right. Of, of trying to figure out where that next job's coming from, um, you know, regardless of the industry. But I mean, yeah, the, the, the toll that that takes on you mentally, physically, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, like you said, it's not sustainable over a period of time, right? You're going to run yourself ragged and then, you're not, you're going to lose that, you know, whatever passion, whatever love you did have for, for that is, is going to be gone real quickly because it's just, it's not worth the, uh, the mental health or the physical health of, of yourself to, to keep, to, to continue to do that. Yeah, that was a, and that was definitely a lesson I learned in my twenties. Uh, <laughs> I, I work 
worked in the event marketing space um, at a uh, ski resort. And then again, for some action sports companies on a contract basis. And man, when you're young and when you've got the energy, nothing feels better than being in that like triage mindset and just handling stuff. Yeah. Uh, but as we, as we get older, um, it's definitely easy to appreciate a degree of stability. And, and I definitely, uh, I definitely do. Yeah. 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 You're well put. So kind of working in the digital marketing, digital marketing space. And, and I'm sure, you know, there's other, you know, uh, companies or ad companies that operate in your space that maybe deal with, you know, that they'll, they'll take on anyone, right? Whether they've come up with a, an approach or they're just willing to kind of start from zero every time they take on a new client, whatever the case is. I have to imagine, obviously operating, you know, primarily in that power sports industry, um, it, it makes things a bit easier from, you know, client to client, and especially like you, like you mentioned with your services that you offer, but what's the most difficult part of, of operating in this space? That's a really good question. Um, I think the the most dif- the the greatest degree of difficulty I've had is is when I do step out of my vertical. Um, will there have been we've had time with clients in um, let's say the restaurant industry um, and in other professional services um, that they're just, they require such a different, uh, scope of work from than than what, let's say 80 to 90% of, of my day is typically like that. I just, I, I've had to spend too much time, you know, not worth the return. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well put. Um, and, and oftentimes, um, it's, it's not a, it's not so much of a challenge to, uh, to, you know, work, work with those clients. Um, but they require so much more time to make sure that, that our work lines up with their expectations. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's kind of the, the assembly line, um, idea that old Henry Ford pioneered, um, it, it, it holds true to this day. You know, um, I can, I can get a lot done, a lot more done, a lot less time. Um, if I don't have to step way outside of the vertical. And so, um, you know, that being the nature of business, I try to make it as efficient as possible. Um, I, I, um, I don't, um, I, I really do enjoy the challenge and, and of working with different types of clients. And I, in, in my current vertical, don't have as much client interaction as I'd probably like to have. Um, but, and, and, and so when we do step out, it's, it's nice because it's, it's like going, uh, it's like a vacation from work. We get to go to, into a, a different office and speak to a totally different type of person. And it, uh, you know, it kind of forces us to be better, but the reality is that over time it, it, it's so much more taxing. Yeah. So what would you say Tristan is, and I don't even want to know, I don't even know if I would say like mistake, but 
okay, we'll call it mistake. The the biggest mistake sure. that that these companies are making, or and this may not even be just you know as it pertains to the power sports industry, but just you know companies in general when it comes to their you know digital footprint, their marketing, all that stuff. What is is kind of the overlying theme that you seem to see um, that people are not doing correctly that they could to you know really take that next step or to really enhance what it is that they're trying to do. Yeah, it's it's reluctance to play the game. Um, paid advertising is uh, not without its um, it, it's it, paid advertising in the today's digital landscape is a bit broad um, because we've got some we've got some antitrust issues at play. We're talking about two of the biggest companies on the planet um, deciding exactly what your dollar is worth and and uh that can be problematic the unfortunate reality is that it's a very rare company that can uh refuse to play in that space that keeps a wide open sales funnel so um my my the duration of my time in this industry um i've i've worked with a lot of companies that have modest to small budgets and the the one very cool thing about paying google and paying meta is that you are paying for results if the advertisements are run and managed properly um so that and and that that's another way of saying you only get what you pay for and you only pay for what you get. Um, so there's a solution to fit any budget. Yeah. Um, to, to, to choose not to play in that space though, uh, requires a great deal of, of effort, um, from the content side, from, um, referral and, and, and other um, other funnels being executed perfectly, and uh, PPC or pay-per-click advertising just offers um, a, a pretty darn easy solution to putting people in your in your sales queue. Um, yeah, and I'd imagine that those right. companies that don't want to play that game along with you know having a great um, approach to their content. Um, they probably also have a product that really kind of speaks for itself too. Right. And it almost seems like in this day and age, you know, to come out with an innovative, never, never seen before product is extremely tough. Um, but I think that when people, if they think they have that, they're, they're probably like you said, yeah, reluctant to want to play that game. Cause they're like, Oh, this product is amazing. There's nothing else out there like it. It speaks for itself. People just need to try it. Well, that's that's the rub right there. It's you got to get you got to get people to try it, whatever it is, right? Yeah, and 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 I I think you're dead right uh, that there's not a lot of products out there that exist that are truly unique anymore, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so a lot of what businesses, uh, a lot of the challenge that businesses are faced with now is is finding the uh, working to get their product to find its customers. Um, the, the market is, is 
saturated in most markets are pretty well saturated with with very viable products and willing consumers the trick is just connecting the dots yeah <clears throat> excuse me so how does i feel like i know the answer to this question but i'm going to ask it anyway how does conservation tie into into the company into the brand into everything that you guys are doing there well it's it's purely a personal um sense of responsibility um it may have something to do with uh the fact that my chosen um vertical is a petrochemical burning uh <laughs> highly consumptive um highly consumptive space and i feel a little guilty about that um also because because the people who utilize power sports equipment largely depend on the same public trust resources that I depend on, um, for hunting and fishing. Yeah. Uh, we're finally starting to see a recognition of that fact. And it's pretty great to see the off-road and, uh, overlanding communities start to organize around the ideas that, you know, they need public land too, and that conservation matters. Um, that, you know, that doesn't fully acknowledge, um, all of, all of the, the costs associated, but something's better than nothing. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to burning gas and diesel, uh, we all have a couple fingers pointing back at ourselves. So we, um, it's, it's, it's really good to bring those people into the tent and, that was just always something I felt strongly about. So I wanted to make sure that, uh, that my efforts are, or, or that I, I prioritized conservation in business as I have in my personal life. Um, and so when, uh, 2%, um, became an opportunity for us and I got to talking with Jared, it, it was, it was a no brainer. I was already doing the, um, I was already doing all of the, uh, time commitment and usually the money as well. So, um, it, it, it wasn't hard to, to connect those dots either. Yeah. And you said the magic words there. It was a no brainer. If I had, if I had a dollar for every time a guest came on and I asked them, you know, the same similar type question and, you know, their answer ultimately came to, it was just a no brainer. I'd have, I mean, I wouldn't be rich, but I'd have enough money to, you know, have a good dinner or something like that. Right. <laughs> like yeah. I haven't been doing this podcast that long, but yeah, no, that's, I, I like that. That's the approach that you took, right. That you wanted to take the, the same responsibility, um, from a, a business standpoint that you did from a personal standpoint. And, um, you know, especially when you, you recognize, you know, the kind of the industry that you're working in and, and the consumers of, of that product are, you know, inherently, you know, causing damage, um, which like you said, we're all, we're all guilty of that to some degree, right? We all drive vehicles and, and things like that. So to, to, to have the wherewithal and the recognition, um, to understand that I think is, is, a uh, it, it's, it says a lot about, you know, the, the outlook that you have and, and the character that you have, um, as it pertains to, you know, wanting to do the right thing, um, for the outdoors and for, you know, wild places and all that stuff. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I'm not 
trying to, uh, I'm certainly not trying to vilify um, those uh, who enjoy the prize parts community. I think we've got a lot of overlap. And I mean, uh, any more out in the Chucker Hills and uh, during most rifle elk seasons, I see as many um, as many side by sides and four wheelers as I do when I drive past a, a off roading area. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of overlap, and and I just think it's so vitally important that we all kind of take a good hard look at our impacts on the um, resources that sustain us and that furnish a way of life and and yeah just it it only makes sense to give at least as much as you take and again ideally a little bit more yeah so what are some of the orgs that um that you guys are working with or giving back to so my uh primary time commitment is with backcountry hunters and anglers i've been involved as a chapter leader here in oregon since 2016 um, and I've been, um, coming to the end of my first term as chapter co-chair, um, with my, uh, fellow co-chair Ian Isaacson, also a Michigan native, and awesome dude, one of my best hunting buddies. Um, so my time commitments, uh, BHA represents, uh, the lion's share of it. Yeah. We'll also do some, some projects with local game agencies and land managers, um, through, uh, through BHA and through, um, Oregon Hunters Association. Uh, we often do, um, we often do fencing projects every year, um, habitat access initiatives. Um, this year we raised a bunch of money for a public, um, uh, a private to public, land transition um, out in um out in northeast oregon um and then i spent a lot of time um over the years um my ian and i and my my co-chair um at oregon bha have really prioritized policy um because we feel like that's one of the places that we can we can really um magnify our time and so uh, between he and I and several other members of our chapter, um, spend a lot of time every year, um, identifying the, uh, the initiative petitions, legislation that, uh, that are likely to influence, uh, access opportunity for hunters and anglers and engaging with those policies. So, um, over the last several years, we've done, um, a bunch of work with, uh, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife in, and to ensure positive outcomes for archery elk hunters, uh, a bunch of time with, um, inter interagency task force to, to set wilderness rules for wilderness that have extremely high amounts of traffic. Um, and yeah, it's really just been, uh, super fulfilling and, and, a, a place where I can, a, a vehicle for me to learn a lot more about the way things work, the way the world works and, and, um, ideally, uh, influencing larger numbers of people than just my immediate sphere, um, by, by weighing in on the, on the policy front. Yeah. The policy front is, it's, it's just as important as anything else when it comes to, uh, especially like access, uh, uh, and things like that. But it's also one of those ones that people, 
I think, you know, as soon as kind of the, the P word, the political, you know, politics is thrown around, sometimes people are like, hey, I don't want anything to do with it, right? Like, even though it's, it's vitally important, but I have seen uh, a lot bigger of a shift. And, and BHA is one of those organizations that does a great job of making it very easy for their, um, their member base to reach out to their local representatives to voice their opinions on, um, you know, different proposed bills, um, you know, land transfers, anything like that, and making it that much easier for their members, um, I think has been absolutely vital, um, to have our voices heard because if there's anything that the last six, seven years has taught us is that everyone has an opinion. Um, especially when it comes to the political landscape. Um, and oftentimes the, I don't want to say the, the minority, um, because, you know, usually when it comes to, um, public lands, um, you know, a vast majority of us, regardless of the aisle, the side of the aisle that we fall on, um, we all want what's best for our public lands and, and things like that. So it's, um, it's, it's made it easier. And I think it's, almost given um, people uh, a bit of a, a comfort level with it, right? If they can, you know, I mean, there's these pre-drafted emails almost, right? That you can, um, yep. that you can send to your representatives. So, you know, the person in kind of their own comfort can do some reading and, and understand a little bit more about what, you know, maybe a proposed bill or, or something like that is, is really set out to do. And they don't have to maybe feel silly because, they're, you know, asking someone in a public forum, Hey, I don't even know what this is or, you know, what exactly does that mean? Right. They can, they can do all that on their own and, and weigh in. And I think that helps them, um, you know, just kind of get over that, that hurdle of, of policy. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that's been one of BHA's biggest strengths is leveraging members and, and really members of the lar- larger public, um, to interact at a, at a, certain level yeah. uh i think it 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 bears acknowledging uh that those action alerts uh despite being really easy touch points for people only count for so much when they reach a legislator's desk um and and most most legislators tally those emails as one email when yeah. they receive a form letter but what we're trying to do is is make sure that people understand that and break, break down a barrier of entry. Um, so that, so that that dialogue with representatives becomes, um, that much easier. Yeah. And bear with me. I'm going to lock my dog out cause he's no. starting to whine. <laughs> You're good. Hey, out. Yeah. Out. Like I said, I can, before out. we started recording, um, I have my two dogs out in the living room as I'm sitting in my office by myself and, there's been a couple times where I can hear him wrestling around. I can hear my pup out there just kind of doing the, you know, little Simba growl as, uh, she's, as he is probably getting his butt kicked, but, uh, no one has come to my office door yet. And I'm a little nervous about what may or may not have been chewed up. What, a, what awaits you in the living room? Yeah, exactly. So Tristan, before I let you get out of here, man, a couple more questions for you. Um, we are, gosh, we're middle of October here or, very close to it. Yeah. October 11th. What, what does the rest of the season hold for? Do you, do you still have any tags yet to fill more bird hunting? What does that look like for you? 
Yeah, well, uh, just coming off of a, a great opening weekend in Oregon, uh, a really, really hot one. Um, it, it was 85 degrees when I got to the truck on Sunday afternoon, um, which is uh, not great in October. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the story of our season. I got burned out of my archery unit um, and was thankfully given the opportunity to um to resign my tag and hunt a general season tag over on the coast so um and then and then uh had planned a hunt to uh to montana for their upland opener on september 1st with a buddy of mine um and canceled that also due to extreme heat so um kind of the theme of the year is uh, so far not a not a great reschedule, one, uh, but a <laughs> but a rude awakening that you know these higher than average temperatures are uh, really impacting us. Um, so I'm praying for uh, for cooler weather, a little bit of rain um, or some snow. But uh, yeah, we we've got um, a couple whitetail tags waiting for us in November. Um, hope looking forward to helping some friends with their rifle elk tags and then spending uh, every available weekend uh, behind my dog, chasing Chucker, um, the occasional pheasant and uh, yeah, just enjoying being outside and doing something. So we'll be, we'll be bird hunting all the way to February here in Oregon. And it's a good way to spend your, your fall and your, you know, early winter months. That's for sure. It's pretty great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I count, I count myself real lucky that I get to have that much time, um, to allocate and the freedom to, to do it. Um, so really just hoping, uh, that cool weather comes soon and the snakes go into hibernation and we can start, uh, really chasing birds in earnest here, here real soon. Yeah. All right, Tristan, for listeners out there that Maybe they own a, a small, you know, um, dealership that, that kind of pertains to power sports or, you know, maybe something of the like, or maybe they just want to learn more about next level digital marketing. Where can they find you guys at? Well, I am uh, not particularly proud of my website. I spend <laughs> way more time um, helping my clients than I do helping myself. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, I would encourage anyone who has uh, digital marketing needs um, and is willing to give a 2% certified uh, small emphasis on small marketing shop a shot uh, to email me at Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N at nextlevelmarketing.com. That's N-X-T-L-V-L marketing.com. Uh, we have a website. It's N-X-T-L-V-L marketing.com. Um, but um just email you. Just email me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, oh. and yeah, uh, it, it's it's um, I'm I'm always happy to lend an opinion. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing in the conservation space has been um, smaller um, one-off stuff. We do. Uh, I'm really happy, uh, excited rather, to see uh, some stuff in print. We've been doing a bunch of um, print ads lately for state conservation organizations and really um, helping drive membership for a couple conservation orgs and drive program participation for some other ones. 
Um, and, and so if, uh, if anyone out there is looking for, um, a higher, a higher level of traffic to a specific, um, specific conversion, then that's, that's really what we do. It's, it's not necessarily that we service a specific type of client, just that we facilitate a specific type of interaction. And that is getting people to do the thing that you want them to do. So, um, Tristan, thank you a ton for taking some time to join me today. Uh, hopefully I lived up to the Michigan billing, uh, for all of your friends out there that have, uh, kind of laid down the gauntlet for me. But uh, no, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, best of luck, you know, as your season goes on here and look forward to getting you on again in the future. Likewise, Marcus. And I, uh, I, yeah, I, I hope, uh, I hope I can con- continue to carry the, the flag forward for 2%. Um, it's, it's been um, really great talking to you here and getting to know you. I look forward to the next time we get to chat. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're in Michigan, man, give me a heads up. We'll get outdoors and do something. Likewise, if you ever want to chase birds up Hell's Canyon, you you know who to call. There you go. All right, Tristan, take care of yourself, man. We'll talk soon. You do the same. All right. Well, thank you again, Tristan, for joining me on the podcast today. I would like to thank the partners of the podcast, Hardside Hydration, Stone Glacier, Outdoor Class, Go Hunt, and of course, 2% 2% for conservation. Uh, be sure to go out and support these brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Now is uh, a great time to do it with a ton of great Black Friday sales uh, and whatnot going on. So great time to pick up some good gear, support conservation in the process. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands, including the ones I just mentioned that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation driven content landing in your feed. So you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, Also, while we're talking about Black Friday sales, be sure to check out theaverageconservationist.com where we'll be running a Black Friday sale as well. So another opportunity to pick up some gear for the uh, outdoorsman, outdoorswoman in your life and uh, sport conservation in the process. So until next week, everyone, stay safe out there. Happy Thanksgiving. And remember, conservation starts with you.